Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. And another one from the same chapter, verse 34 of Matthew. When the king, then the king shall say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father. Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you from the creation of the world. These two texts are taken from a series of parables about the second coming. Christians through the ages have longed to hear those words when their Lord and King arrives. We too long to hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. Come, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared from the creation of the world. How do we ensure that we are on the same page as our Lord and King to be ready to hear those words? Today we're going to examine the life of one of the kings of Judah from around 600 BC. 2 Kings 24, sorry, 2 Kings 22 verse 2 introduces him by saying he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in all the way of his father, of David his father, and he did not turn aside to the right or to the left. Let us pray. Gracious Lord, as we prepare this time to review the life of one of the kings of Israel, I ask you to be with the, the lessons, the reading of scripture, and the interpretation thereof, that we may be all blessed and desire to seek you earnestly, as he did. In Jesus' name, amen. Any thoughts of who the king might have been? He was one of the youngest kings in Judah. Both his father Ammon and his grandfather Manasseh had been wicked kings of Judah. Joash became king at the age of eight after his father had been assassinated after ruling only a few years. You can find the full story of Joash in 2 Kings 22 and 23 and 2 Chronicles 34 and 35. We'll look at quite a bit of that piece today, but not all of it. Think about what lessons we can learn from this child who had not grown up with many godly examples in his life and was put in this role of great responsibility at a very young age. While we don't have many details of his young life, we are given some insight into his direction and his decisions during his rule as king of Judah. And that's where we'll spend our time this morning, some 2,400 years after he died. Some background for those of you that may not be familiar with a lot of the Old Testament stories and history. The Israelites under their first king, King Saul, then King David and Solomon were one kingdom. The people that had come out of captivity in Egypt under God's direction. And they were made up of 12 tribes. Following that time, of following the time of Solomon under Rehoboam, the kingdom became, became split. You can read the sordid history, as it were, in, in scripture. Ten, Rehoboam and, 
and Jeroboam. Ten were remained the name of Israel and were called the Northern Kingdom. The kingdom, the tribes of Judah and Dan became the Southern Kingdom and were called Judah. And it was the tribe of Judah that the Messiah was prophesied to come from. Idolatry had always been a problem. And as we'll see today, it continued. Idolatry and apostasy wasn't something new. Even Moses had to deal with it, and it continued to wear its ugly head, as it were, over the centuries. At this point in history, the northern kingdom, Israel, had already gone into captivity. After prophet after prophet had prophesied that this would happen. Judah is facing a similar fate. They were to be conquered and totally destroyed by the mighty kingdom of Babylon. And many were in denial. The Lord continued to send his prophets. Hezekiah, the great-grandfather of uh, Josiah, had walked with the Lord, pointing the people to God, and had established observances of the statues that composed most of the book of Deuteronomy. It was a prosperous time, but his son and grandson after him set aside the law of God. <clears throat> Many returning to idolatry. Prophets such as Isaiah and Zechariah foretold the destruction of Judah during this period and then into Josiah's reign, uh, Jeremiah came on the scene. We'll open our book, we'll open our study this morning with Second Chronicles 34, 1 to 3. And no, I don't have the scriptures on, this, on the board. <laughs> Just where they are. Oh, they, he's brought them up? Oh, there you are. Oh, maybe some of these, some of the couple ones at the start. Maybe some of the longer ones at the end. I, I didn't put them all in. Sorry. Josiah was eight years old when he became king. And he reigned in Jerusalem 31 years. So he was quite young at his death. He did, did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and followed in the ways of his father David, not turning aside to the right or to the left. In the eighth year of his reign, while he was still young, he began to seek God, the God of his father David. In the twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, Asher poles and idols. Verse 2 states that not turning aside to the right or to the left. One of the Bible commentaries stated that Joash was the only ruler um, that this statement was written concerning, not turning to the left or to the right. It was specified in this particular. Uh, but but jo uh, Josiah fulfilled all the specifications of a future king. In the eighth year, when he was 16, he committed to seek God and his role as king. And when he was 20, in his 12th year, he decided to put in a plan to purge Judah and Jerusalem of all the symbols and places of worship. In verses 4 and 5, it gives further details of this destruction, including the burning of bones of the idolatrous priests upon the altar. Uh, such an act would desecrate that altar, and it would not be fit for further use. And then in years, 
he also went into Israel to um, purge some of the idolatry from the areas that bordered his kingdom. But we'll look at more of those excursions later. It was felt that the reforms he started at 20 continued on throughout his ministry, as we'll see in a second. So now we're going to switch from Chronicles to 2 Kings, chapter 22, beginning in verse 3. Having removed much of the trappings of idolatry, Josiah turns his attention to the temple, having long been neglected because of the rules of his grandfather and his father, and it had fallen into disrepair. God did have faithful workers throughout this time of darkness, and the next two verses will describe the efforts to correct some of that neglect. In the 18th year, in verse 3, in the 18th year of his reign, King Josiah sent him his secretary, Sapim, son of Azalah, the son of Mesham, Hamlam, to the temple of the Lord. He said, go to Hilkanah, sorry, Hilhanah, the high priest, and have him get ready the money that had been brought into the temple of the Lord, which the doorkeepers had collected from the people. Have them entrusted to the men appointed to supervise the work of the temple, and have these men pay the workers who repair the temple of the Lord, the carpenters, the builders, the masons, and have them purchase timber and dress stone to repair the temple. But they need not account for the money entrusted to them because they are honest in their dealings. It says in the 18th year of his reign, when he was 26, still young, a young king. It is especially interesting to note that he focuses on repairing the temple before the discovery of the Book of the Law. The text indicates that the king had already experienced some success in the endeavor in that the money had already been collected for the repairs as the narrative of the story begins. What remains to be done is the actual work on the house of God. And he doesn't micromanage this, but gives the authority and responsibility to the skilled workers that will be making the repairs. So it can proceed uh, smoothly and directly without having to be over um, managed at every point. Verse 8. Hokanah, the high priest, said to Sapham, the secretary, and this was the secretary of jo uh, Josiah, I have found the book of the law in the temple. He gave it to Shapham, who read it. Then Shapham, the secretary, went to the king and reported to him, Your officials have paid out the money that was in the temple of the Lord and has entrusted to the workers and supervisors of, of the temple. So he went back to the king and reported the progress on the work. There's some doubt as, he, as if he really, whether he really understood the importance of the book that had been found, because he mentions the, re, the progress on the workforce before he announces that he's found this book. Then Shapham, the secretary, informed the king, Hilkiah, the priest, has given me a book. And Shapham read 
from it in the presence of the king. The king, when the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his robes. It is likely that it was the book of Deuteronomy that was found in there, and the king reacts. Verse 12, he gave orders to Elkanah the priest, Achim, son of Shapham, Abor, son of Mishavah, and Shapham the secretary, and Isaiah the king's attendant. Go and inquire of the Lord for me, and for the people of all, so that all sorry, and for all Judah about what is written in the book that has been found. Great is the Lord's anger that burns against us because of those who have gone before us have not obeyed the words of this book. They have not acted in accordance with all that is written concerning us. Josiah certainly recognized the importance of what was found, and he wanted to take action. But Josiah also knows, but is willing to proceed forward. One commentator wrote this, Josiah knows the risk of dramatically changing the worship scene in the kingdom. And think about it if this is not where we are sometimes. No doubt he deals with such fear and considers compromises would seem sensible. After all, does he have to be so militant about the idols that the other Judeans have grown up to love? Can he act with a bit more tolerance and wouldn't his subjects appreciate a little moderation? Before reading Moses' book of Deuteronomy, he might have gone the way with tolerance, with, to tolerate the pagan worship, but no more. He assesses the action to take. He tears his robes. He's stricken to his heart, realizing God's anger towards his people. He immediately sends his advisors and officials to seek out a prophet to inquire from God. He had rightly interpreted the words of um, Deuteronomy, that there was um, danger, very present danger there. Verse 14, Hilkanah the priest and his associates went to speak to the prophet Huldah, who was the wife of Shalom, son of uh, Tigva, the son of Hardis, keeper of the wardrobe. She lived in Jerusalem in, in the new quarter. She said to them, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. Tell the man who sent you to me, this is what the Lord says, I am going to bring disaster on this place and its people, according to everything written in the book of the king of Judah has read. Because they have forsaken me and burned incense to other idols and aroused my anger by all the idols their hands have made, my anger will burn against this place and will not be quenched. Not a new message, a message that they had heard before, that had been given in the kingdom of Israel prior and has been given here. The prophets had known the spiritual leaders were the, sorry, prophets were known as spiritual leaders where the kings or others in power could go to search for the words of God, words from God. Hilkanah and his band went to seek out Huldah, 
who was known as a prophet in the city of Jerusalem at the time. How to gain the same message that had been given for centuries. And in verse 18, she continues her message. Tell the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says concerning the words you hear, you heard. Because your heart was responsive and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard what I have spoken against this place and its people, that they would become a curse and be laid waste. And because you tore your robes and wept in my presence, I also have heard you, declares the Lord. Therefore, I will gather you to your ancestors, and you will be buried in peace. Your eyes will not see all the disaster I'm going to bring upon this place. Joseph's responsive and humble heart had touched the heart of God. God had seen him tear his garments. God was moved by his tears. God knew he was honest and righteous. Therefore, Josiah was spared the coming destruction. This merciful message doesn't cause Joah, Joah, Josiah, sorry, Josiah to just sit back and figure, there's nothing I can do. It's already set in stone. No, he loves his nation, and he's not going to see any of them come under God's judgment if there's anything he can do about it. So he sets to work. We're going to look at chapter 23 of 2 Kings. The king called together all the elders of Jerusalem and Judah. He went up to the temple of the Lord with the people of Judah. The inhabitants of Jerusalem, the priests and the prophets, all the people from the least of them to the greatest. He read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant which had been found in the temple of the Lord. This king wastes no time. He's not just going to keep this to himself and arbitrarily put some uh, measures. He's going to bring this to the people to know what is going on. He knows that the time for his people is short and the time for action is now. And verse 3, the king stood by the pillar and renewed the covenant in the presence of the Lord to follow the Lord and keep his commands, statutes and decrees with all his heart and soul, thus confirming the words of the covenant written in this book. Then all the people pledged themselves to the covenant. Not just Josiah, but all the people made a covenant with the Lord. Josiah had properly responded to God's words. By the time he became king, scriptures had long been neglected, and Josiah's heart was smitten by the failure of his people to honor God's words. Um, Josiah had scripture read to the people and had made a commitment to live by it. As we read in 2 Kings chapter 22, verse 19, because your heart was responsive and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard what I have spoken, I also have heard you. God made a promise to Josiah. Only after Josiah had declared that the covenant, um, the covenant himself 
do the people have an opportunity to respond? This, this portrays the communal nature of scripture. Josiah individually reading Deuteronomy was not enough. The book was either for the entire people or for nobody. It's not just one person taking the action. To live according to God's word, the universal pattern of spiritual advancement is set out. The first step, knowledge, information. That is, kings like Josiah would receive new information about God that they didn't know or weren't aware of before. The second step was response. They had the opportunity to decide what to do with the knowledge. Other kings had ignored it or else silenced the voices that spoke it. But after Josiah decided to respond appropriately. The third step, action. We hear, we understand, we respond, and then we take action to move forward. And this is when the hard work comes in. And most of the bulk of chapter 23 does give details of what he did to rectify some of the damage of centuries. If Yahweh is God, he is the only God, was jo uh, Josiah's understanding. We'll just, we're not going to do the full chapter of changes. We'll look for a sample of what went on in verses 4 to 6 and look at both what Josiah did to change things, to improve things, but also to appreciate the degree of and the, um, the depth of the idolatry that was present. The king, the king ordered Hilkanah the high priest the priests next in rank and the doorkeepers to, renew, to remove from the temple of the Lord all the articles made for Baal and Asherah and all the starry hosts. He burned them outside Jerusalem in the fields of the Kidron Valley and took the ashes to Bethel. He did away with the idolatrous priests appointed by the kings of Judah to burn incense in, the high place, incense in the high places in the towns of Judah and all around Jerusalem. Those who burned incense to Baal, to the sun and the moon, to the constellations, and to all the starry hosts. He took the Asher poles from the temple of the Lord to the Kidron Valley outside of Jerusalem and burned it there. He ground it to powder and scattered the dust on the graves of the common people. We can see from these verses that, and through the most of the rest of the chapter, the degree to which idolatry had taken over. It was in all parts of the area there. We're going to skip down to verse 12. He pulled down the altars the kings of Judah had erected on the roof near the upper room of Ahaz, and altars Manasseh, who was uh, Josiah's great-grandfather, had built in the two courts of the temple of the Lord. He removed them from there, smashed them to pieces, and threw the rubble in the Kidron Valley. So right in the temple were a lot of those items of idolatry. The king and the commoners were both active 
and duplicit in idol worship, as can be seen from what um, Josiah had witnessed when he went to remove everything. We're going to skip down to verses 15 to 18, which talk about an excursion into Israel. Even though Josiah was king of of Judah, Israel is the next kingdom. That kingdom had basically gone into captivity, and the Assyrians were looking after it, were ruling it. At this time in history, they had started to lose some of their power, and he was able to get in and do some reforms in part of that kingdom. This talks about a a significant event that happened that we'll look at a bit more. Verse 15. Even the author of Bethel, the high place made by Jeroboam, son of Nebat, who had caused Israel to sin, even the altar and high places he demolished, He burned the high place and ground it to powder and burned the Asher pole also. Then Josiah looked around, and when he saw the tombs that were there on the hillside, he had the bones removed from them and burned on the altar to defile it in accordance with the word that the Lord had proclaimed by the man of God who foretold these things. The king asked, What is that tombstone I see? The people of the city said, It marks the tomb of the man of God who came from Judah and pronounced against the author of Bethel the very things you have done to it. Leave it alone, he says. Don't let anyone disturb his bones. So they spared the bones and those of the prophet who had come from Samaria. So it's obvious in looking at these verses that some prophecy was pointing to what Josiah had done. We're going to take a trip back now in history to that prophecy written about this place and event and a prophet sent on a mission by God to speak against the altar that uh, Josiah had just demolished. We go back 300 years to the time just before, just after the two kingdoms had split. We're going to switch back to 1 Kings chapter 13 and read just four or five verses there. Starting at verse 1 of 1 Kings 13. By the word of the Lord, a man came from Judah to Bethel as Jeroboam was standing by the altar to make an offering. Jeroboam at that time, as someone uh, spoke of earlier, was the king of the northern kingdom. He was fearful after the kingdom split into two separate kingdoms. He was fearful that the people would want to go to Jerusalem because that's where they always went to worship. And he was afraid that if they went, they would enjoy going there and he would become surplus and they would kill him. He didn't want that to happen. So he devised a system whereby they could stay in their own territory, as it were, and worship. He made two golden calves, put one in Bethel, one in Dan. And he said to them, 
the gods that brought you out of Egypt. And those of you that are familiar with Egypt and the exodus from Egypt and the time in the desert, golden calves tended to be a problem. He built the altar at Bethel in the northern tribes to hold these celebrations where sacrifices and worship could <clears throat> take place and days, festive days could be held without anybody having to go to Jerusalem and thus, in his eyes, securing his throne. On this occasion, he's making an offering on that altar when the man of God arrives that the Lord had sent. Verse 2. By the word of the Lord, he cried out against the altar. Altar, altar. This is what the Lord says. A son named Josiah will be born to the house of David. On you, he will sacrifice the priests and the high places who make offerings here, and human bones will be burned on you. In addressing the altar rather than the king, God is denouncing both the idolatrous altar as well as the system of idolatry. He gives a very specific prophecy, a child, a son, Josiah by name, would be born to the house of David. And then, quote, on this altar he will sacrifice the priests of the high places who are making offerings here and burn human bones on them. So he's not saying he will burn the priests that are alive. He's, he's talking mainly about the bones. Burning bones, as we mentioned earlier, would desecrate that altar. Bible commentators call this one of the most, mar most remarkable prophecies in the Old Testament. Two nations are involved. One practiced idolatry at the time, the other did not. It showed God's power and knowledge and its fulfillment in a person and an act. And a third fulfillment is also there, and it has to do with the bones of the prophet that delivered the message and another that um, turned him aside from his way. And that's another story that's quite fascinating and interesting. We won't go into that story today. That's, as, uh, that's for another day. Josiah, in the 18th year of his reign, literally accomplished this prophecy, as we read. I had never heard this prophecy, and I know in Adventism, prophecy is a big thing. We look at a lot of the prophecies of Scripture as it was, was fulfilled in Jesus and Second Coming. But this is a remarkable prophecy. We'll just look a bit more at it. Uh, in verse 3, the same day the man of God gave a sign. This is the sign the Lord has declared. The altar will be split apart and the ashes on it will be poured out. Then King Jeroboam, when King Jeroboam heard what the man of God said against the altar at Bethel, he stretched out his hand from the altar and said, Seize him but the hand that was stretched forth toward the man shriveled up and it could not be drawn back. And five, also the altar split apart and its ashes poured out according to the sign that had been given by the word of the Lord. So that Jeroboam and his people 
might be impressed that the man of God was a true prophet, a sign had been given and immediately fulfilled. The altar would split apart, the ashes would be spilled, and that happened. It's a serious and dangerous thing to put out your hand against the man of God with this solemn message. And the king's hand shriveled. The king did ask God, the man of God, to pray that he be healed, and he was healed. Those who are sent on God's errands must not fear the faces of men. Although it was so many years before that the prophecy was to be fulfilled, the time was spoken was sure and close at hand. To God, a thousand years is like a day. And in case you're inclined to think that, yeah, this is a remarkable prophecy, but God makes prophecies and we see them filled throughout all scripture, only one incident, other incidents in scripture is a parallel to the one spoken here. Any thoughts about what that other single prophecy is? It's the prophecy that occurred a hundred years before Babylon's defeat and the arrival of the Medes and Persians on the scene. It was the telling of Cyrus, that Cyrus would come and Cyrus would be instrumental in having the Jews return home. He was named as Josiah was named. A lot of the other pro uh, prophecies are more vague. But when you see them fulfilled, you know exactly that this, is, this meant this. These two are unique in this, where a specific person is named. If we look back at 2 Kings, or I, I, was, I was going to say before I finish there, Adventism is built on that foundation of prophecy. Doesn't this present another example of the faithfulness and love of God? He can be trusted to keep his promises. I had never seen, I had read both books before, read scripture through, but I'd never seen that connection. Because you're just reading, you're going through, you're looking at the stories, but never quite saw them connected in that way. I found it quite remarkable when I came across it recently. Back to uh, 2 Kings 23 in verse 21. The king gave an order to all the people, celebrate the Passover of the Lord your God, as it is written in the book of the covenant. Neither in the days of the judges who led Israel, nor in the days of the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah had any such Passover been observed. But in the 18th year of King Josiah, this Passover was celebrated to the Lord in Jerusalem. Josiah holds a spectacular Passover feast that is considered one of the best in the history of, of Judah. Many decades earlier, Hezekiah, his great-grandfather, had also held a Passover feast following some of the reforms that he had made. This yearly activity was established initially as a memorial from Egyptian slavery. Under the intervening kings, kings it had not been held. There hadn't been, apparently, a Passover since Hezekiah, Hezekiah's time. God's people need to remember all that God has done for them and to celebrate these times together, building community and sharing in the love and bounty of God. 
It is just not about making reforms and doing work, but taking that time to celebrate how he has led, what he has done. Um, Nehemiah did a similar sort of thing with the rebuilding of the temple at another time, that he took that time to rebuild the temple in a later time. For the word of God is active and living, something that we know. Hebrews 4.12, active and living in Old Testament times as well as in New. And chapter 23, verses 24 and 25. Furthermore, Josiah got rid of the mediums and the spiritualists, the household gods, the idols, and all the detestable things seen in Judah and Jerusalem. This he did to fulfill the requirements of the law written in the book that Hilkanah the priest had discovered in the temple of the Lord. And 25, back to almost a a well-done type of statement, neither before or after Josiah was there a king like him who turned to the Lord as he did with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his strength in accordance with all the law of Moses. He did what he could. He did what he had the power to do. Before I finish up with a few lessons, and maybe you have a few more to, to add from um, the, less, the, oops, the king we learned about today. Knock that down. There's a story about a man named Oscar Schindler. Some of you may have seen a movie of Oscar Schindler I don't know, it's a long time ago. It's about a German uh, opportunist who was initially motivated by money. In in some ways, not a pleasant man. He was not faithful to his wife. He was a bit of a a character in Germany at the time prior to the war. Prior to the war, he had scouted out um, some of the other countries around about to see what their systems were like. And he belonged to the Nazi party. During the time as as Hitler and his staff were rounding up Jews, he suddenly became very touched that he had to do something to save these people. He didn't want them all knowing, sensing what was going to happen to them. So he used his resources. He bribed. He paid for things. How does it put it here? He used his entire fortune in bribes and black market purchases to supply for his workers. He had saved 1,200 persecuted Jews. There's a touching, difficult part to look at the end where he's realizing the war is over. He saved these 1,200 Jews and he fingers his watch. He said, I could have bought another one. And he looks at the things in his room. He couldn't get past it, realizing he still had some wealth. Not much, but he had some, and just could see, you know, for for this much, I could have got another one. All his Jewish employees were very grateful that he had worked as much as he did. After the war, he never regained his fortune. He never regained his ability to work effectively, almost to look after himself. He did get a small pension. It was estimated that his expenditures over the war to save these people was over a million dollars at that time. Um, 
he got a sort of a reimbursement from the American Jewish Committee, um, and they gave him 15,000 is what they were able to give him. But he was supported by them. He went to, to um, Argentina, couldn't make a goal but there, came back, and then was taken in. He re relied on financial support from the Schindler Duden, which means Schindler's Jews, the people whose lives he had saved during the war. They supported him until he died. And then, where was he buried? He's buried in Jerusalem, in a Catholic cemetery. He's the only Nazi buried there. You can get special permission to be buried in Jerusalem, given that it's, it's not just seen as um, a final resting place for Jews, but also other religions as well, particularly Christians and Muslims. But, and they put little rocks on there as um, sort of a vote that they were, were great. At his funeral, there were 500 of the people that he had saved at his funeral. He did what he could. He had resources, but number one, he had the will. Whether he was a devoted man of God, I don't know. But just as an example, that wherever we were, are, and if we look at lessons we can draw from Josiah. He was, he made changes where he could. He was the king. He had power, and I think he recognized that he had power for good. So wherever we are, we have our little bit. Some people have bigger bits they look after. He showed his influence from a very young age. As king, we know that this influence can show up at a young age. And we have young people that we would like to influence to be positive role models for their peers and to grow into responsible positions. He lived a life fully committed to God and was obedient and blessed by that obedience to God's will. He didn't give up when he'd gotten that message that your kingdom is going to be destroyed. The history has been long. He continued to work and to strive. And I guess one of the biggest, um, he walked in the ways of the Lord all his life. He did which was right, not turning to the left or right. And sort of maybe, maybe not a side lesson, but I was going to say a side lesson from Josiah's life itself, but God can be trusted. He's faithful to fulfill what he has put in place um, for us down the road, just as he did in that prophecy that was written 300 years before Josiah fulfilled it. Thank you.